From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Monday, we're back. Yep. Still no Adam. And still no Adam. That's okay. He'll be back soon. <sighs> Hold on tight till Friday, folks. <laughs> we can almost guarantee Adam will be there. Yes. And he'll have uh, great things to report and things that he's drunk. Yeah, he'll probably have at least drank some stuff. I don't know if he'll have read anything. We'll find yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of drinking things, Zach, what have you had recently that's been uh, great? Yeah, so a couple of highlights for me. Um had the opportunity to try a wine from a part of California that I think about with some regularity but have a uh, limited experience with, which is uh, kind of the Sierra Nevada foothills, in particular El Dorado County and the I guess delightfully named Fair Play AVA. I need to look up what the backstory is there, but, you know, fun name, I suppose. And this came from a producer who actually reached out um, and sent some samples. Reminder, you can always contact us, podcast at vinepair.com. Not promising we'll try everything, but it's worth a shot. Mm-hmm. So Conduit Wines, this is their uh, estate primitivo. Um, so functionally is Infidel, uh, which is they did in a sort of a kind of a brighter, fresher style, but it's also really interesting. They they picked these grapes kind of like right as the wildfires were kind of like approaching their, the vineyard. Oh, wow. So I was curious when I got this because, you know, they're very upfront about that. And I was like, huh, I wonder if this is going to have like any perceptible smoke taint. Smoke taint. I'm yeah. pleased to note that it does not. Um, <laughs> there's like a subtle kind of like almost brininess to the wine. And there's a part of me that's mm. like, I wonder what that is about. Cause it's not particularly close to the water or anything, but um, no, it was quite good. Like a bright, juicy um, primitivo slash Zin, you know, just fun wine. Um, enjoyed getting to try that and, you know, appreciate the effort they went through to harvest grapes uh, with a fire bearing down on them. Maybe, you know, as long as they didn't take any uh, unnecessary chances, I think that's cool. Yeah. Um, and then I think the only other highlight for me was um, having something else that I haven't had in a long time. Because every once in a while, um, to me, I'm at like a you know at a function or something like that, and I'm confronted with a like a beverage that I just like haven't tasted in a while. And for me, this was Alaskan Amber, which is a, I don't know if that was ever a beer that had much traction outside of the this part of the country, but um, it was like an. I don't know. Not a super like early craft beer, but still pretty early. Um, and one I drank a lot of when I was a lot younger. Um, hmm. Has like an orca on the labels, pretty cool. Uh, but just was like, oh yeah, like I probably haven't had this beer in I don't know a decade at least. It reminded me a little bit of our conversation about the like uh, you know the various uh, like European import beers that have sort of yeah. disappeared. Your basses, your harps, etc. I was like, oh yeah, an Alaskan amber. Wow, someone dug this up. I didn't even know. Wasn't even totally aware it was still out there. But uh, you know, I was at a charity event and was like oh cool i'll have this beer sure so how about you joanna did you have any uh any special bottles to celebrate your son's first birthday <laughs> um no not as of yet no but, 2023 um... vintage wine <laughs> does the stella rosa count um <laughs> i guess it does yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh recently tried um the bottled gray goose vodka martini Ooh. that was really good actually um pretty dry. I don't know, very easy to to make and to drink. So that was fun. It was something that uh, we'd have had at our office for a while and brought it home and um, Evan and I enjoyed those. And then also got a chance to try the new Empirical Doritos Spirit, which (laughs) I I liked it. I know this was a bit of a 
a very divisive one for people, and most folks didn't really like it in the office, but I actually liked it a lot. It's kind of, um, it's, it's very savory, vaguely cheesy, and uh, has, has a lot of umami going on. Do you on. like Doritos? I do like Doritos. Okay. Yeah, but like, uh, I think it'd be like a fun little game to give somebody a, a shot of this and ask them to identify exactly what it is. You know, like I feel like knowing that it's a Doritos spirit, you perceive it and then you taste it. But I, I think it's just it's kind of interesting, uh, maybe without knowing. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, really cool yeah. to try. Um, those are kind of the standouts of the past week. There you go. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully some fun stuff uh, this week, this coming week. Yeah. All right. So what yeah, we're we talking so- about today. Exactly. My job today. Um, <laughs> so I think the the a thing that I wanted to talk about and have been sort of thinking about for a while that was a little bit uh, kind of crystallized by a couple of sort of things that I read recently or was or were sent was, you know, there was a lot of talk from us and lots of other people about the ways in which the sort of post pandemic period would be like the landscape for hospitality workers in particular would perhaps look a little different than it had pre-pandemic and that there was some hope that between a sort of smaller workforce that maybe therefore had more kind of bargaining power and just a, a a sort of reconfigured notion of like what the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry kind of exists to do might make things better. And um, no, sorry, uh, that has not happened. <laughs> And the two pieces of news. So one of them is is not is news in the sense of like uh, the press release came out, which is that Tales of the Cocktail is launching this. Or the Tales of the Cocktail Foundation is launching this initiative. Just launched it this last week to kind of help advocate for raising the sort of tipped minimum wage in lots of states where, like New York, where uh, tipped employees can be paid way below minimum wage with the sort of under the, the theory that, well, they're making tips, so therefore they're actually making more than minimum wage, even if that money is not coming from their employer. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But, you know, to me, it is a I, – I cheer on these efforts. I think it's kind of preposterous that an employer has such a limited financial responsibility to their employees in states. Um, I mean, this federal minimum wage is a joke, but the like the tipped minimum wage is – I don't even know what it's not even a joke. It's like just cruelty or something. And the other piece of this was um, our colleague, David Fonte is writing um, for his uh, Substack fingers about sort of the inside, what kind of what happened uh, at death and co and their attempt to unionize and the failure of the union unionization vote um, there. And these are different stories. I don't mean to conflate them exactly, but they both struck me as interesting data points in how, you know, despite all the the kind of complaining from operators and, you know, various uh, restaurant associations and chambers of commerce and such about how no one can hire anyone and no one wants to work and all this, working conditions in this industry are still not what they could be and probably not what they should be. So... I have lots of thoughts, but, you know, Joanna, what what do you kind of, how do you feel about this? Yeah, I mean, you kind of put it to me, like, why haven't working conditions gotten any better in hospitality? And I think that ultimately, and this is probably very reductive because it's more nuanced than this, it's it's just 
for many operators, it's just too expensive. And and that's that's super depressing, right? Um, because these are people and their livelihoods and, and really labor-intensive work. And um, they, you know, people in the service industry certainly deserve to be paid more in what they're worth. Um, I had a conversation recently with uh, a restaurant owner um, of a wine bar in Brooklyn, someone who is a friend of the brand. And, you know, he was kind of explaining to me that for that for some uh, businesses or restaurants, rather, that their operational costs are as much as 40 percent. And and that's kind of untenable for a lot of restaurants to, to maintain that. But if you want to get good good employees and you want to retain those employees and avoid some of the issues that uh you know we've heard mentioned over the past couple of months especially in the in the death and co case like um this is what you have to do but then how do you how do you you know play with the margins otherwise and then also food costs have gone up um we were talking about this in the context of of pricing alcohol which is something that we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit lately. But yeah, I think it's just, it's really complex. And I think for a lot of operators, it's probably just easier and more cost effective to continue to pay the wage that they did pre-pandemic. And maybe we're just at a point where people need jobs. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think there's definitely some element of like, there's some of it is just is just sort of inertia, for sure. I think some of it is that as the death and co example shows like collective action is hard and the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry has often been one where you have a lot of very small operators with, you know, small workforces that are understandably not going to necessarily be that incentivized to collectivize, to unionize and to try and sort of make a more systemic change to their working conditions in the way that other industries are perhaps easier to or have historically been easier to unionize in that regard. I also think that a big part of it is, is that there still remains this enormous disconnect between the public's desire for dining options, Mm. hospitality options, and its willingness to pay what would, and, and it's, it's a spoused belief that in some cases, at least that, you know, workers should, be paid more. I mean, I think about here in Seattle and here in Washington state, you know, Washington state does not have a tipped minimum wage. All tipped employees have to be paid the standard state or municipal minimum wage, which in Seattle is not nothing. And especially when you're a tipped employee, you know, it adds up on top of that. It's actually a pretty good, it can be a pretty good pay rate and restaurants here and bars here and stuff have to just deal with that as the sort of quote unquote cost of doing business, right? In the same way that rents are high because, you know, property is largely in demand here and stuff like that. And so you build that into your operating costs. It explains to some extent why you charge what you charge. Yeah. And people in who want to live in Seattle and in and around Seattle and want to support it and do all those things have to make the conscious decision of what they're willing to pay. I think that system is not ideal. <laughs> Let's yeah. be clear. And I think part of it is because um, everyone on the hospitality side is very much sort of subject to the vagaries of the public and the whims. And some of that is fine, right? There's nothing that says that your like crazy new restaurant concept has to succeed just because 
you are doing something interesting. And unfortunately, there's nothing that says that your restaurant has to succeed because it treats its employees better or pays them better, at least. But I do think that it is unfortunate sometimes that there is this tension between perhaps doing right by your employees or at least providing them with a beneficial workplace and being profitable or even viable as a business. It's not impossible to do. It is being done. I've seen it done, but it can be harder. And that's the problem is I think we as a society, I think, should be thinking about ways to make that easier, not harder. And we currently don't really do that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think especially when those uh, those ty- that change is coinciding with all of these other economic factors um, for people to there's just a very obvious and understandable unwillingness for people to pay more um, for something they've probably never questioned before. I think uh, people probably take service for granted, like diners and and consumers and patrons and things like that take that for granted. Um, And so this idea that people should be paid more to do it to give you a good experience um, doesn't really compute for a lot of people. I think I think there's definitely a willingness to have that happen in fine dining um, where maybe it makes more sense to people because the food is prepared a certain way and it's a certain caliber and, and people have a certain caliber of experience that you're paying for. Um, but for casual dining especially, I, I think people just it's it's really hard for people to feel like those price increases on menus are justified. Yeah. And I think that one of the biggest problems in a way is that we, so, you know, we had a, I feel like we've had this posed to us a few different times before, and we've often talked about it specifically in the context of like wine bars and stuff like that. And why is it, you know, the pricing so different in the United States and why do you pay so much more for wine? Why is it such a, why do all wine bars have to be restaurants, et cetera? And we've talked a lot about this in a sort of, and I've mentioned before that there are broader cultural and sort of societal reasons for that. And, you know, a thought that occurred to me a bunch early-ish on in the pandemic was, and I don't think I ever expressed it on the podcast because I don't know if we just ever had the space, was that, you know, I, I believe pretty strongly that if you think that restaurants bars and those kinds of establishments have a sort of cultural value that goes beyond their pure economic value. I.e., like if you look at those things as having, you know, a community with vibrant, you know, perhaps um, independently owned small business restaurants and bars as being a, a vital part of a community, right? Whether that's in New York city or a much smaller town with, you know, a few family owned restaurants, if you think there is value in that element of American society being what it has historically been, as opposed to a vast monotonous landscape of chain restaurants, mm-hmm. the kind of restaurants that can and are thriving in this modern landscape, because, you know, they can, you know, we we're talking about this when we we're talking about the, the introvert economy, like they can scale, they can, um, you know, kind of spread out their costs among a bunch of different properties and all that stuff. If you want all of these interesting, small, daring, creative, interesting restaurants and bars to exist, it feels like we we almost societally need to say that that is a a a kind of institution that needs to be, in some sense, um, 
I guess, subsidized in a way. And I think about how Hmm. valuable that kind of subsidy has been for restaurants and bars in Europe, about how the various ways in which those, those industries are subsidized. And obviously part of it is things like, you know, the less, less, uh, sort of basic healthcare and stuff like that being a part of the employer employee relationship, but also just the way in which there's financial support to those kinds of restaurants in a variety of different ways. And it operates differently in different countries and different municipalities and stuff like that. But that we could, if we cared to, and again, you know, I recognize some of this is pie in the sky, but we could prioritize providing that kind of subsidy for these kinds of businesses in the way that like, in certain places, at least, you know, we subsidize, you know, certainly we subsidize sports teams. And look, I'm a big sports fan, but like, you know, which of those things is, I mean, I think people make an argument that, you know, sports teams and stuff like that are cultural institutions. That there, It does make sense in a way for a um, municipality or a state or whatever to partially at least subsidize what is in fact a, non, uh, a private for-profit entity. Yeah. And you think about things like museums you know, symphonies, zoos, all these things that have a, a, a number of different ways in which we directly or indirectly subsidize them. Sometimes it's just about, you know, uh, inexpensive land or tax breaks or things like that. Sometimes it's maybe direct, you know, direct financial support. But we recognize that our communities, our societies, our country, our world perhaps are better for having these things in them and that we we cannot put certain elements of our society fully into a sort of free market capitalist space because they have values that cannot be quantified like that. And I believe pretty strongly that restaurants, bars, hospitality establishments of a lot of kinds fit into that. Maybe not every single one, maybe not all to the same extent, but we all know the value of a quality restaurant in your neighborhood, of a place where you can go when you want to do something out of the house. You don't feel like cooking there. You want to just, you know, have an occasion, something like that. And I think that it is really unfortunate that we have framed this. I have framed this. We, and and many other people have framed this as a, you know, kind of employees versus employers battle. And I think the truth is that there are some shitty operators out there who are glad in a way to take advantage of their employees. I think the overwhelming majority of them would love to do more for their employees. They just look at it yeah. as a, a sort of like, we are, we, we can't, we, we're getting, we're just barely getting by if we're getting by. And the only dynamic they can see is the one where they take the money they've earned from selling food and drink and give some of it to the people who work for them. And there isn't this sort of broader question of like, well, should we as a society be saying, hey, this is a thing of value and we should do more to preserve it? Because it won't last if we don't. That was yeah. a lot. I'm sorry. It's been <laughs> on my mind for a long time. It was. Yeah. I mean, I get it. I I think it's a little. What's pie the word? The pie, it's yeah. pie in the sky. Yeah. It's a little sentimental, too. I think I think it's a little. Uh, ups- obviously it's very impractical like to have people yes if you put that I'm sure most people would yes of course these like local places they they matter to me and they're important to me and like I grew up going there and I'm gonna take my kids there and all that shit but like let's raise your taxes so we can support them and make sure they don't go away I think people would just lose their mind you know 
Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I think there are places where maybe that would be the case. I mean, I don't know. I would be curious to know uh, some of our like, you know, New York City listeners, if there were some sort of, I mean, certainly lots of different taxes and things are appended onto your check in, in cities like New York, San Francisco, Seattle for various causes and things like that. You know, certainly cities charge hotel taxes and stuff like that, et cetera. I would be very curious to know if there was, I mean, a tax on the people dining out maybe is the not the ideal way to do it. But I'm just curious if people would would consider these kind of entities to be worth some, I don't mean it has to be, oh, now suddenly we just are, you know, they're, they're not, we're not, I'm not talking about um, nationalizing the restaurant industry. <laughs> I want to be clear. But again, I think I, I don't, I'm not an expert in this. I'm sure listeners out there know more than me. So you can write in and tell me how wrong I am, podcast at com. But I do think that there are plenty of these things that I mentioned and many others where there is some degree of subsidies for, again, direct or indirect for these kinds of quasi-public, quasi-private, or sometimes even fully private entities that still provide what we see as sort of a valuable, fill a valuable societal role that, again, goes beyond just pure dollars. Um, because I don't, I think we would all agree that it would, our, our lives would be worse, our experience in this, in this life would be much less enjoyable and much less um, textured, I guess, if all of these various things, be they restaurants, be they bars, be they, you know, like I said, zoos and aquariums and museums and libraries and all that stuff were were kind of fully subjected to market forces. And we, we agree that some of them are and some of them aren't. And I'm not sure that those dividing lines make as much sense, or at least sometimes they have, may have to be revisited and in a way that restaurants and bars might have seemed like a thing that, of course, should just be, you know, fully private with no government involvement whatsoever, except on a like kind of regulatory and I don't know, like, you know, health and safety standpoint. Now, maybe we need to reconsider that. Maybe those, those lines are less clear. Perhaps. I think, you know, I think you're so unconvinced. I love it. (laughs) I dig it. Joanna wants all your restaurants to fail. I'm I'm not just trying to, (laughs) I'm just trying to take the more, I don't know, practical perspective on this. I I mean, I see like, I think a lot of restaurants added the service fees and things and, and I think some places still do that. I think like in California, a lot of restaurants are still charging a service fee even after whatever, quote unquote, after the pandemic, right? Um, And... I don't know. I guess there is still some willingness for people to pay that, right? Or just uh, maybe people have resigned themselves to to that being part of dining out now, right? You're going to get this service fee. But I think in a lot of places, we've kind of just seen that in menu prices, right? They took the service fee away, but they just raised the prices on the menu. Yeah. So I think it, those things are kind of happening, obviously, not in like a, in, in a state you know, government way or anything like that in state way. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I guess I wonder just, you know, what will it take short of what you're saying <laughs> for <laughs> for the working conditions to get better and to actually get better in in hospitality? Yeah. And I think the last thing I do want to say is that regardless of whether there is a sort of you know my my presidential campaign on this uh, <laughs> seriously on this, yeah on this platform <laughs> goes anywhere restaurants guys yeah exactly whether or not that goes anywhere um, it w- is not the point to me the point is that I think you know we think about 
um, to me, the thing about restaurants and bars is that there's some of the, for many of us, the small businesses that we interact with on a really regular basis. And in the same way that, you know, many other small businesses and categories of small businesses have been put in various forms of jeopardy, or in fact, largely, uh, you know, kind of crushed by a variety of sort of much larger entities, be they hardware stores, um, you know, grocery stores, etc. There's no law that says it can't happen to restaurants and bars. I mean, I would like to think that our sensibilities as a dining and drinking public are not quite so easily swayed by pure convenience and pure, you know, kind of slightly lower prices that, you know, these kind of very large companies can offer or at least purport to offer. But, you know, you look at the rise of ghost kitchens and you look at the rise of all this kind of, you know, the the sort of attempts to take people you know, to centralize as much commerce as possible on a few platforms. And I, I worry, I, I think that it is for an industry that is already very precarious in a lot of ways, it doesn't take much more. It doesn't take a lot to kind of create a conditions where a whole bunch of restaurants, restaurants that, you know, I love, you love listeners out there love are no longer, are not only no longer profitable, they're just, they can't even remain open. And that doesn't mean every restaurant's closing. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But I think I look at, you know, the closure rates around me. I look at, you know, how a lot of long-term and, you know, really viable established restaurants are closing. And it's hard not to think, like, maybe we as a society could be doing a little more. And it's it, it has to go beyond to me just being like, oh, go to your favorite restaurant more. Like, that is that is a kind of heartening but not sufficient response. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, treat your employees better too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe this the this Tales initiative will be good. I know there are other organizations that are working hard to make make you know, provide more resources for people in the industry um and yeah, maybe we just need more things like that. Yeah. All right. And like well, I said, we want to hear from you guys. You know, yes. please let us know your thoughts podcast at vinepair.com. It's it's always great to get your feedback. And if yeah. you'd like to join my political action committee, uh, <laughs> I'll come up with a name and, you know, we'll figure out where you can start sending those checks. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Zach, have a great week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.